Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Hello and welcome to The Python Show. I'm your host, Mike Driscoll, and today we welcome a very special guest, uh, Brett Slatkin, author of Effective Python. Welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and perhaps your journey into programming? Yeah, sounds good. So um, so I'm a, a software engineer at Google, been there for 18 mm-hmm. years. Um, I've done a lot of different kind of programming while I'm there. Um, how I got into programming, you know, I was always a big fan of computers, uh, you know, as a kid and, you know, games and stuff like that. Always wondering how they were made. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were in that kind of category. I got some exposure to Logo and Basic early on, and and a little bit of cool. Pascal. Um, and I just thought it was just so interesting and fun. You know, I I, I liked math a little bit, and so it was kind of a fun mm-hmm. way to do that too. Uh, and so one thing kind of led to another, and I, I got my hands on a C book, and ran all the examples and learned C. And this is around when like it was possible to get a compiler pretty easily, like with you know with Linux and and open mm-hmm. source just starting to get more widespread over the internet. So I, um, yeah, I got really into like MUDs and a bunch of that kind of stuff and Linux and running Linux and, um, and, and modifying code you could get in the Linux kind of, uh, ecosystem. And, uh, yeah, so that's really how I got into programming. Um, it was, you know, when I was like 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old, it's really where I started doing more and more of it. Cool. It's always nice when you start out young. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like it was, you know, I, I feel like I knew programming before algebra. Hmm. So when I look at a mathematical equation, it always, there's like L values and R values, you know, mm-hmm. other people see it as like, sorry, that's maybe damaged my math actually long-term, but, uh, <laughs> but I, yeah, it's I, I like, I feel like I learned a lot of, about math from programming as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. That's funny. It's a lot, you know, a lot of people, I think I think algebra is like integral to programming. So for sure, you almost need it before you can program. But I think it's cool that you started the other way around. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, how did you get into Python then? Just curious. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a funny story. So I was um, when I was getting into programming, you know, I did a lot of side projects on, you know, you know, building little apps and whatnot on on you know modifying muds, like I said, and then I got mm-hmm. really into like networking and internet servers and that kind of stuff and like scalable networking and you know really wanted to get into the most high performance kind of systems i could so i learned c and c plus plus and you know and Mm -hmm. asynchronous sockets and all that kind of stuff i was super into that and that's why google you know back in i started there 2005 i was like this is a scalable place Mm -hmm. big software our systems and this is awesome and i'm going to do this and so I was really fortunate to get a job at that point. And on my first day, they're like, cool. Yeah. So f- all, forget all that. Um, you're going to be writing Python. Uh, <laughs> here's a book. You know, the person who wrote the book sits over there. So, you know, if mm. you have any questions, it was Alex Martelli's uh, Python in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know Python at all. Uh, I didn't, I had seen it maybe by reading the BitTorrent source code at some point, you know, mm-hmm. 2004, 2003. And I saw Zope a little bit, uh, that you know, that framework, which totally turned me off. I was like, I will never, never do this. Uh, and yeah. but then, yeah, I was, I, you know, was kind of put in this the hot seat where they they had uh, they had a, a strong need for infrastructure orchestration in Python. 
Um, mm-hmm. and so I got to work on that for a number of years. And so, yeah, so that's where, that's where it started. And, uh, and I ended up loving it, you know, and, uh, I did a bunch of C++ also in, in high performance code for sure, but mm-hmm. Python was, and still remains some of my main language of choice, both, uh, personally and professionally. That's really cool that you, you had to learn it on the job, but you also got to learn it with like Alex cause he's a, he's yeah. a cool guy. He was great. You know, I, lo- I love Alex. Um, you know, I learned a lot of really interesting details from him. Sometimes people say like, oh, you know, if you had to rate your Python skills on a, a, a you know, one to 10 scale, you know, where would you put mm-hmm. yourself? I, well, I know Alex, so I know I'm not a 10 out of 10. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like that's, he's yeah. the next level, you know, in terms of his knowledge. So, um, so yeah, he was great, great inspiration and, and mentor for sure. Yeah, I feel like when people ask that question, I'm like, you can't know any language at a 10 level, really, because they, almost all languages are so huge and cover right. so much space. The library is so vast, whatever it is. But he actually knows that little like factoid about the you know third optional parameter to you know zip longest yeah. or whatever. You know, anyway, anyway <laughs> pretty cool to see. So I don't know yeah. that. Yeah, he definitely knows the esoterica of Python. Right. So that was a great resource, and and yeah. So we had, we had a lot of good times. Um, and then after that, um, I worked on the Google App Engine team, which is the, you know, it was kind of platform, the fir- first Google Cloud product and the first kind of one of the first platform as a service types of things out there. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like Heroku, people have probably heard of. And uh, and uh, Guido Van Rossum ended up joining our team. And I worked mm-hmm. with him for a number of years too. And again, learned a lot from him. Uh, yeah. And that was really great. So, so I, I really benefited from, learning Python by watching other people write Python, modifying their code, having them do code reviews of my code. So it was really a, a real uh, blessing, you know, to, to be able to have hands on with these people who really know uh, what's going on and were able to be, they, they were patient with me, <laughs> teaching me the yeah. right way to do things, you know. That's awesome. That, that's really cool. Thanks. <laughs> so now you've had all this experience with Python. Do you have any like, favorite packages or modules? Yeah, so I can I can list a bunch of these ones. I mean, I think um, I'd say there's some good ones and some bad ones. There's some ones mm-hmm. I love, and there's some ones I love to hate. If that makes sense, so maybe I'll go through uh, yeah a few of those. Um, I'd say one of the ones that I'm you know I'm most excited about um, but isn't in yet is it's coming in Python three one three. Okay. Um, and it's the whole interpreters package. This is the sub interpreters, um, mm. uh, you know, functionality from PEP. I think it's like seven, seven, three, four. I was looking it up and this is the ability to run many Python processes, or, sorry, Python interpreters in the same process. Mm-hmm. So unlike multiprocessing where you have to start like creating sub processes and moving, uh, data around and serializing a lot of data, there's going to be a way to do it where you have many Python processes, sorry, many Python interpreters in the same actual process sharing mm-hmm. memory with separate gills. And so I just think the ability for parallelism for a lot of like web serving workloads and data processing workloads, it's going to be way easier um, mm-hmm. to, to do kind of large scale parallel processing. And so I'm really excited about that. I think it's been a slow burn um, for, I think Eric Snow is the person who's leading it, but I'm, I'm really excited about that and where that's going and, uh, and what people are going to build on top of it. Um, so that's probably one I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not using really yet, but I'm really excited yeah. to start using. Um, I, th- I think they announced that like five years ago or something. I feel like that, that's been sm- floating around the background. Yeah, forever. And and using, you know, multiprocessing, you know, has been a great module to have. You know, I've reached for it a bunch of times and some of the mm-hmm. tools in there, like shared memory, you can actually get a ton of throughput. You know, like there's one thing I wrote one time 
processing HD video streams, like, you know, gigabytes a second, you know, completely memory bound kind of um, workload. And we were able to get mm-hmm. it to work on Python, which is, which is amazing because you would never yeah. think that it could, it could saturate that kind of bandwidth. So I'd say interpreters and multiprocessing are, are kind of hand in hand. Mm-hmm. That's one I really like. That's cool. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, that's good. Yeah. No, all good. Um, yeah. So I'd say another one. Um, the other one I think that I'm spending a lot of time on is LLVM Lite. And so this is what powers Numba. So Numba is like mm-hmm. the kernel accelerator. You know, if you're writing some math kernel function to do simulation or whatever the thing is you're doing, hmm. um, you can write just Python code. It's kind of like Cython and some of those other kind of like Python to C tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Numba is really cool. It like JIT compiles your Python into a faster version that's that is really running native code under the covers. That's super cool. Yeah, and it's powered by this other package underneath that, which is LLVM Lite, and that's a wrapper <laughs> around LLVM, which is like I don't remember what that stands for. I don't know if you remember, but it's like the compiler backend behind Clang and the C compiler okay. for Clang. Um, and so it's a it's a tool you can use to generate assembly code and 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 compile it. And so hmm. you can write Python nice. code, and it will manipulate like a high level, um, you know, intermediate representation or IR for assembly. And then you can kind of turn the crank, and it'll spit out native code that runs native speed on your um, on, on your machine. And it can it can do either to create a binary, like an actual executable you could run, or JIT, it can JIT it and run it in process super fast, which is how Numba works. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been really just awesome tool, like for um, building compilers and programming languages. And, um, and that's one of the things I've been, I've been doing with it. Um, I, I've in the last two and a half, three years, I've been really getting into building a programming language. I've built little toys before, but I've never built my own. And, uh, so I've been using this tool to build a new, um, purely functional programming language, which has been you know, inspired by Python and, and, uh, not, not, it's not public yet, but um, I'm still working on it and having a great time. And, and LLVM Lite's been just a critical tool to do that. Um, so I really encourage people who are interested in like building programming languages of any kind to check out this package. It's really well, well done and well maintained. That's really cool. Yeah, I had to look it up. LLV, LLVM stands for Low Level Virtual Machine. There it so. is. Yeah, not to be confused <laughs> with LLMs, which are another kind of buzzword right now too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I can, and that, I guess that was the other one I was going to mention was all the LLM stuff. I mean, I feel like you can't, you know, say a single word without someone mentioning all of this AI stuff. Um, yeah, but there's a bunch of cool packages there. Simon Wilson has one on LL, LLMs that that makes it really easy to generate text and stuff. There's also hmm. GPT for all. So this is all just like models that run on your own machine, do all kinds of cool stuff, like telling you stories or summarizing text. All kinds of like interesting use cases. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely encourage people to check that out. It's actually really easy. Um, and it's free because it runs on your own machine. So it's, it's pretty, pretty fun. What's, what's possible now. So there's a bunch of packages in that category. Um, Langchain's another one that just really makes this stuff super accessible. And so if you haven't poked at that, um, or, you know, or you're kind of, you know, you're, you're like, ah, there's too much hype here. It's actually pretty straightforward. So it's worth poking at and trying for sure. Yeah. That's on my to-do list too. I mean, I've used ChatGPT, but I've not actually tried to use it programmatically with Python yet. Yeah, so. yeah, I would, I would totally encourage you to do that. You start learning things about like stop tokens and how it actually understands like whose turn it is to talk and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's some fiddly bits in there, and then and then you start realizing like what it's good at, what, what what's fast, what's slow. So there's some intu- mm-hmm. intuition about the the 
because I'm not an ML like researcher or practitioner. I'm like, yeah. I can pick it up like a hammer. I have no idea how it works inside, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I have, I mean, I have some ideas, but you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to try that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of, so then I, w- I did want to mention, yeah, in terms of packages, I, I can't, I cannot, you know, have a conversation about Python packages without mentioning ones I really don't like. <laughs> and I don't mean to be <laughs> negative. Um, yeah. You know, it's, I, I'll try to keep it positive, but um, I'd say there's two I really have problems with. And, um, and one of them is typing and the other one is async IO. And I, maybe I can spend a little time, you know, talking about that. Okay. Um, sure. Yeah. But I, I feel like um, typing is really interesting because, you know, static types, if you look at like TypeScript versus JavaScript, it was it completely revolutionized the JavaScript community. You know, TypeScript is so successful. It's actually very fun to use in my experience. So the idea really makes sense. Adding types to a dynamic language can really help developer productivity, collaboration, reliability. Like I totally, I get it. I believe it's possible. Um, I know many people that were like, I will never use JavaScript because it's a terrible language who are happy to use TypeScript because it basically put some rails in place that made everyone feel better about it. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I believe the idea of adding typing to dynamic languages is, is a good one. And mm-hmm. I think the intent behind the typing module is also really good. Um, but in practice, you know, and I don't know if it's the specific implementation approach that Python has taken or BiPy specifically, or the fact that there's many type checkers. I don't really know what it is, but I will say that when I, you know, like just qualitatively, my own you know, anecdotal feelings is like when I've interacted mm-hmm. with code bases that are heavily annotated, I find it to be so much more difficult to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it makes me miss the Python that I remember, which was like super pithy, dynamic, very much to the point, easy mm-hmm. to read, easy to fit in your head. And so I feel like uh, maybe we've gone too far the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like super dynamic. You can do anything, you know, monkey patch everything, yeah. you know, like Perl-esque kind of too much and then there's mm-hmm. like too many types, too locked down. And so I feel like, you know, somewhere in the middle is where we should end up. And so I'd say typing is really developed. It's still developing and it's hard. It's still too early to know if it's really something worth investing in as a development team, I think, um, mm. because we don't know what the right, what's the right balance point between like too many types and not enough types, you know? And so yeah. I don't know if you, have you had that experience at all with, with, with typing? So... You know, I, typing gives me a little bit of heartburn too. I, I like it and I don't. Um, originally, I really disliked it, but on a team, on the teams that I've been on the last couple jobs, because we have super experienced and then people who barely know Python at all on the team, right. the typing has helped in those situations because they keep the 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 noobs. Well, unfortunately, not know what type to pass through, and it is ca- it causes really subtle bugs. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the type if if the if the code base had been type hinted, it would have caught those. Yeah, that's frustrating. Um. And this and, and normally I wouldn't you know normally that's not really a big deal, but I I work in big big agricultural products, so oh, interesting. You know, we're we're guiding tractors on fields, and sometimes if you mess up you know, guidance a little bit or you mess up with the seeds getting planted, that that can be kind of a big deal. Yeah. And so trying to get this stuff dialed in 
has made me realize that type ending is helpful. However, I agree that the the custom types, you know, you go beyond like lists and tuples and right. dictionaries. I don't like those. I yeah. find they're really confusing because you have to go searching through the code base to find out where they're defined and if they're a type based on another type and it's like basically a combination custom type. Yeah, totally. It like blows your brain. That's really hard to follow the code. Yeah, totally. And so <laughs> for me, I, I just want the standard types and maybe the classes. And that's, yeah, like keep it simple. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I like that a lot. And that, that sounds good to me. I'd say it's also domain specific. I love your example of, of the ag stuff because, you know, hey, you don't, your tolerance for error is really low. You know, where I, if I'm hacking out some data science like code, like I really do not care if there's an error because it'll just blow up and that's that, you know, so. Exactly. So that's why I'm also saying it's domain specific. So I, anyway, so mm-hmm. I think typing's got a lot of promise, you know, in, in the language I'm building, my program language that I'm trying to build, you know, I'm putting in types that are inferred. You know, I do yeah. see value in static typing for sure. But mm-hmm. I agree that, like, you know, there's a certain amount of level to it. Like, do I want um, higher order, higher rank types and all that kind of type theory stuff? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. if, I, if, if Python's the best place for that. So anyway, so that's that's one. That's yeah, interesting. Um, <laughs> and then AsyncIO, I want to talk about that too, which is like, AsyncIO is really cool. I mean, it's super cool technology. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, really powerful it's complete it has like tons of great stuff and async functions and iterators now they've got it all like it's all there now and for python it does make sense in certain circumstances because you are limited by the gill you know there's only so much you can do Mm -hmm. so if you have a web server or something like that that's process like that's waiting for a lot of io um you can get some good performance out of it and you know it can help with efficiency or um, late, you know, like uh, time to response and some of those kind of metrics, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the complexity required from like a developer standpoint to set that up and then to keep it going, like to debug a, a problem in async I/O code, like where you can't even get a stack trace, you know, that's really mm-hmm. reliable. Man, it is tough, you know. So I I feel like very few teams actually need it especially when you've got huge machines that can handle many threads. You've got the sub interpreters thing in the new pep that we were mm-hmm. just talking about. You've got multiprocessing, you know, you've got front ends like Nginx that'll run a hundred, you know, pointed a hundred different Python processes on the same machine anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just like, I, I think it was useful about 10 years ago, 15 years ago as a concept. And now I'm like, I just don't think we actually need it. And I think, or it's so rare that it shouldn't be what most people reach for. Mm. So it's great to have the option, um, but it's, I think, uncommonly needed. And so when I see like beginner examples and, and like how to's that start with async, I'm like, Ooh, we should, we should probably not do that. Let's, let's start with like synchronous mm-hmm. blocking IO in, you know, maybe in threads, you know, just keep it really simple. Yeah. Um, Cause that complexity will just kill you over time. You know what I mean? So that, that's, that's my big concern there. Oh yeah, I I agree because when I remember when async AO came out, I couldn't get any examples to work that were that would yeah. actually do anything. Sure. Or or I thought they worked, and I find out that they didn't. Right. And, and you know, I, I admit I haven't really used uh, async def and await mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. they added those mm-hmm. because my initial experience was so bad. So I just yeah. I just didn't do anything else with it. No, it makes sense, and it's come. Like I said it's come a long way since like the tulip project, you know, which is probably what you're referring to. Like when it first came out, you're, you're kind of creating coroutines. There was no syntax, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's come a long way since then. So I do think it's interesting, but, um, 
but yeah, it's got, it's got, you know, it still has issues, you know, for, for usability for sure. Yeah. Oh, well it's there. And a lot of people really like it. And I, you know, I have seen, I think, um, was it Robin was a web framework that came out recently. Okay. It has some async, but I think it's using async with, uh, with rust under the covers. Oh, interesting. But it's a Python web framework, so the speed comes from rough doing async stuff. So it's kind of, that one's interesting. Yeah, that's right? that is interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of those hybrid type of, of approaches are also great. You know, Python's great for gluing together native code, and so that's yeah, stuff like that. I think is interesting. And there's mm-hmm. also things like Curio, which is like a totally different threading model using mm-hmm. that package. You know, so I, so I think that, like again, it's like typing. The jury's still out on yeah. do we need this really? You know, in the future, you know, it's how's the best way to go. So. So it's good, to, you know. It's good to try things out. I think for both of, but for both typing and async IO, I think just one last thing I'll say is like, I do wonder if they should have been more of like in an experimental directory, you know, so that you know, like, because again, typing's like changing so much, getting better and more features, and and it's changed so much in the past few releases of Python. I'm like, why is this in the standard library? Because you can you have backwards and compatible changes and all this kind of yes. stuff. So I wish maybe maybe Python needs you know we've been removing the dead batteries in different releases which is great but maybe we also mm-hmm. need like a a battery development <laughs> area like <a> laboratory <laughs> to put packages that aren't quite ready yet you know that but yeah. that we can still use you know uh, maybe that and then maybe that's from future import async IO or or something like that maybe future is that but yeah I feel like there's still it's not you know we're not we're not done yet developing that as a community yeah I can I can totally agree with that. All right. Well, let's shift gears a little sure. bit and yeah. talk about uh, why you decided to write a book about Python. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a great opportunity. I, uh, you know, I had done when I was working on the App Engine. Um, I ended up, you know, speaking publicly at conferences and, and various, mm-hmm. you know, user groups and stuff about what we were doing just to show it off um, as a side project. That was kind of wasn't my job. My job was writing code on the actual systems, but you know it was a much smaller company and smaller group at that point. It was a very small mm-hmm. group of people that built app engine. So we kind of all just did something. And so, so I really enjoyed that. And I did like, I, I had been a teaching assistant back in school and stuff like that. So I always enjoyed educating people, tutoring, mentoring, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah. um, you know, so one thing, you know, so I, I, I would used to write blog posts about Python and other things like that. And one thing led to another and, mm-hmm. and I got hooked up with the publisher, uh, you know, Pearson, who's like, Hey, we want to write another effective book on Python you know, mm. do you want to do this? So it really just fell in my lap. I feel so lucky that that happened, you know, cause I would like Scott Myers effective C plus plus was like my favorite book, you know, mm. <laughs> learning cause we talked about earlier, I love C and C plus plus. And then yeah. like, I'm like, how far can I go in C plus plus? So I read every one of those books that he had about mm-hmm. C plus plus and the standard template library and all that stuff. So to have that opportunity, was just so cool. And so, uh, I'd already been thinking about, oh man, I'd love to write a book on Python. You know, I, I knew Alex Martelli had written his book on Python. So it's something I wanted to do. Um, and so, you know, they, I got connected to them, um, you know, about maybe nine years after I started writing Python, nine or 10 years after I started to write Python is when, when they kind of, you know, contacted me. So, um, yeah, anyway, so that's, that's what it was. That's cool. So are there any lessons you'd care to share about that you learned about when working on this book? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I'd say with all kind of create creative endeavors, including software engineering, programming, development, uh, writing, you know, any kind of English or language or whatever, I feel like uh, sharpening your tools is something that we don't do enough of in general. 
you know, people like, oh, I'm going to copy and paste this, or I'm going to just hack it out, or I'm going to like sloppily do this thing a hundred times instead of writing a script. I feel like I'm definitely mm-hmm. that person who like, <laughs> like will not, I will keep doing the stupid <laughs> thing and clicking the button four times, you know, instead of scripting it for like a long time, like way too long. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, you know, what I really learned about, you know, when writing the book is that like every, you know, books are really long. They're like hundred thousand plus words. And so every, mm-hmm. everything that makes your kind of effort inefficient is going to just slow you down a ton. And so this concept of like efficiency of movement is something you hear people talk about, like in rock climbing or, or other kind of, um, um, you know, like mm-hmm. athletic kind of thing, uh, you know, you know, whatever hobbies or whatever. But like the, the point here is like, if you can make it really fast to have a tight feedback loop or to be very efficient when writing, Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to just be a lot better at it because you're not going to be fatigued from like all the, the stupid stuff, like the, yeah. the toil, like you got to minimize toil. So I think I didn't really appreciate the full extent to that before writing a book. Like I, I, you know, dealt with, like I'd scripted my environment, set up my tools, made things efficient mm-hmm. for sure as a programmer, but like writing a book is just so much toil for so long. You get so tired that like building your own tools, making them work well, um, you know, maximizing your productivity, spending time to sharpen your tools, whatever you want to call that. I, it, yeah. I, I, I didn't really appreciate how valuable that is. Um, mm-hmm. There's like a famous XKCD, I think of somewhere where it has like this table of like how many times you do it a year and how much time you'll save if you automate it by like one minute or something like that. And like, mm-hmm. that's a great kind of way to understand that. But I just like didn't understand it personally, you know, until I, until yeah. I wrote a book. Um, so that was a big one. I don't know. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like I've gotten better at realizing when I need to sharpen my tools, which I, uh, and, and it's really helped me since for sure. That's cool. Yeah. I think, I think the big thing is time management and planning. If you have, if that, if you have that laid, figured out, I feel like that makes writing the book a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I think you, you know, you can do time management, but the other part of that was at the end of the day, it's just about time in the seat. You know, and yes. same thing is true with writing code. You know, sometimes it's just the number of hours. It just takes that much time to yep. slug your way through it, no matter how good your language is or whatever else it is. You just have to like, you know, get in, get in the chair, sit in the chair, and and write the code. And and so, yep. to me, it was more the consistency <laughs> of showing up. Like, hey, every day I'm gonna work on this book this much time, mm-hmm. and, and 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 you know, it was a very slow, like one baby step at a time. I'll eventually get there. You know, and so. Yeah you know, that, that really helped too, is just the, the amount is just, just planning for consistent time dedication. You know, I didn't, I'd say like, oh, okay, I'll do this chapter this week and that chapter next week. And, you know, this is how I'll get it done. I'll, I'll split it up into pieces. And same thing happens when you're trying to design a program and implement a program. Okay. This module I'll build here and this will take six weeks. And, you know, programmers are, yeah. as we know, terrible at estimating, uh, how long it takes to build anything. Um, <laughs> and, and so for me, I, I tried some of that and it, it didn't work. So I ended up going all about like, let's just, just show up and you know every day and try to to get things done yeah 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 i get it so you've gone through let's see the first one came out in 2015 i believe and mm-hmm. then the next one came out in 2019 yeah so what how how different was it to like revise your book yeah yeah i mean it's uh it was i mean this was my when i first wrote the book python 27 was still like the dominant version of Python and it looked Mm -hmm. like Python three might never show up. Like, I feel like, you know, I don't know if you remember then, but it was like, people were like, ah, no, not until Django, not until NumPy, not until, you know, (laughs) this giant uh, 
musical chair, not musical chairs, but it was like a plain chicken. People were just waiting for everyone else to jump, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, so the book, I wrote it for two, seven and three. And so, and the advice is very different for both of them and, and mm-hmm. mostly for two, seven and a couple of carve outs for Python three, where it really was different. Yeah. And then the second edition, I threw out all the Python two stuff and it was entirely focused on Python three. Uh, which is yeah. which is great, and that's ended up you know the community's all on Python three now basically except for you know some of the enterprise um, uh, users, but mm-hmm. generally, um, you know people have been really happy with just being focused on Python three coverage, and there's just giant differences in in uh, Python like under the covers for Python three, um, and so I had to really change a bunch of the advice. So so it was yeah. really a rewrite for the second edition, you know, like rewriting all the Python two stuff for Python three, and then adding a bunch of additional like Python three specific, uh, advice based on, you know, my experience and, and the experience I've witnessed, you know, other people mm-hmm. that I've worked with or, or the community that I've, you know, things I've seen for best practices. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. I think I saw when I, I saw right before I restarted the show, I looked up the book and I think I saw it was, you're having a third edition come out later this year. Yeah, Is that's. That- I saw that that's shown up on the uh, the Amazon um, uh, pages somewhere, and so yeah, it's I, you know I'm working on it. It's it's going to be a long time. <laughs> it's still mm-hmm. not done yet at all, and so I hope to to get it out. You know, sometime. I don't know if it'll be this year, or early next year. Um, okay. But you know, I think that the you know people ask me, oh, should I should I be um, reading the second edition right now? Yeah, absolutely, because the, it's just going to be more. It's not like a completely like when I looked back through all of the existing stuff in the second edition, mm-hmm. it's almost all still accurate, which is great. Python three has been pretty stable, cool. which is which is good. So so I'd say you know the next version I'm I'm just trying to add more. I have a huge backlog of really good you know advice I have from learning you know how to use these tools, and so mm-hmm. it's just an extension of of even more advice for people. But yeah, I think if you're if you right now are trying to you know enhance your Python, you know, skills or whatever, you know, I think the second edition is a great book and, and I would, you know, I'd hate to see you waiting for a long time. It's one of those <laughs> problems like the Osborne effect. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm eventually going to have a new edition available. It's mm-hmm. not ready yet. Do you wait for the new one or do you, you know, what do you do? So I think, yeah, um, yeah it's a, t- it's a tough spot to be in, but I think, yeah, I'd encourage people to like just enhance their learning, you know, as soon as they need it. Uh, yeah. I definitely benefited from that myself. Yeah. That's cool. I thought that was neat that you have a have a third edition because I, I know I know from my own experience that re- rewriting or revising is a can be a pain. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's been great about the format of Effective Python is that it is it is like snackable. You know, like every mm-hmm. the book is not like a cover to cover, you know, like narrative. It's also not expansively covering everything, so it's really like specific advice about specific things, and so you know. I've got a ton of those, like from, from my own experience, like I said, and everything else. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm just adding, you know, I'm adding a bunch and putting a bunch of cross references in. So in terms of the ability to do it, it's, it's the hard part is really about making sure that the, the way it's expressed is like approachable for normal people. And it's not just some abstract concept. It has to be like a real example from a real use case that people might Mm -hmm. be able to imagine themselves encountering. And then, so they can actually see the value of what's happening. I think if you talk about it too abstractly, it's like, okay, but why would I ever want to do this? You know, like yeah. if you remember like, you know, like physics in school, there's two, you know, balls on a frictionless plane. It's like, well, when am I ever going to see that? You know, like, why yeah. do I have to calculate? Like, who cares? You know, like, <laughs> why is that relevant? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I try to always like make the examples relevant to some real scenario. And I feel like that's why it takes so long to, to kind of create the new, mm-hmm. the new items that I want to share with people. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, are you, are you planning to use like ChatGPT or Google Bard or anything to like come up with some of those ideas? Or yeah, no, I, not at all. You know, I feel like I'm I'm very much uh, I don't know if I'm like a luddite or what you would call me, but I <laughs> I'm very slow and skeptical of tools. If that makes mm-hmm. sense, I, you know, I and I like in my day job, I definitely am interacting with uh, you know some of the LLMs and other generative AI stuff, and it's interesting for sure. But for my mm-hmm. own purposes, like I I don't. I feel like, you know, I, I kind of want my touch on it. And I also yeah. want it all to come from my own ideas. Um, yeah. I have no trouble writing words. I can type extremely fast and I can mm-hmm. like the, my issue is more editing. You know what I'm saying? Where I'm like, here's a bunch mm. of words and a bunch of code now make it actually into a narrative that's clear. So for me, I, I feel like the, the whole reason why people want a book like this is because it's been like handcrafted, half hand curated. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yep, think if I, I understand, were, yeah. But if I were like firing off an email or something like that, maybe I would start using some of those tools. But then again, it's like, what's your voice? Where's your voice in that? You know, your personality. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 you have to be really careful about that kind of stuff. And you do, you know, so yeah, I think, um, but I have used it for, for kind of fun, fun things like, Hey, you know, write me a story about some random, um, you know, thing that kids come up with about, you know, a story they mm-hmm. want to hear or, uh, or just experimenting with what it knows, like write me how to factorize, um, an integer uh, in Lisp. Like I'm wondering if it can, if, if can Bard, you know, or, or, or ChatGPT, do they know Lisp? Can they speak in Lisp? You know, I'm curious yeah. if they, if they can, what program languages they actually understand or not. So I think a lot of it for me has just been kicking the tires on that kind of stuff, but yeah. I haven't really used it for my own, um, my own, uh, you know, generation of text or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't used it for that. I, I do like to use Grammarly for like kind of advanced, uh, editing Let's put yeah it that way totally i mean one of the things that's nice about having a, a publisher is like I, ha- I have a copy editor that will actually go through and like mm-hmm. and, and i learned a time mean, that was another thing like what do you learn well in the book i learned a ton about grammar <laughs> you know yes. i thought i knew english before but i totally didn't like i feel like i you know the, the copy editor will just you know completely destroy your confidence in your ability to write <laughs> english <laughs> so so that was yeah that was good um yeah, I do like Grammarly because it it also kind of does that for me, and it's like, oh, I did it again. I messed up that sentence. <laughs> That's cool, and that that kind of reminds me of like um, looking for um, uh, like bugs in your code. You know, it's like, hey, I'm not telling you to change this. I'm just saying this is like this is like this. The grammar of this sentence is confusing, or like you should change yes. this. Like, yeah, I think those are great tools. Like, I'm really excited about a lot of that kind of stuff, like finding bugs in code, especially security bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, helping developers see their problems. And that was another thing to change the subject a little bit. When we talked about typing, the typing module, mm-hmm. when you think about the tools that are becoming available, you know, why should I have all these type annotations when I have these extremely powerful inference mechanisms? You know, like if you look at like Flake 8, the Flake 8 module, mm-hmm. what it can infer about your code and tell you what's wrong, it's almost as good as MyPy in a lot of cases. Like it's amazing yeah. what it can figure out, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's only going to get better as these, you know, more advanced understanding systems come online and become more widely available. And so that's another thing is it's like, you know, in the case of the bug you saw for the junior developer, you know, where, oh, this types could have stopped that. I'm like, yeah, but they also could have had an assistant looking at the code with them and, and flagging the grammar error and saying, hey, this is the wrong type right here. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like you didn't even need an annotation on it for, for uh, someone to look over your shoulder, like peer programming with you to tell you where the problems are, you know? So I, I think that's, 
maybe an interesting place things are going to go if that makes sense yeah i saw i saw something some kind of plugin that works with uh, git and it can it uses ai to like look at the entire source code for prs and it can see stuff like that yeah that's so cool yeah and th- i could see that being a really cool helper i can't remember what they called it now but I was like, this is th- that sounds really neat, and that's something I'd like to try someday. Yeah, I love that where it's really just helping you learn and do better. I think that's really really cool, for sure. Yeah. And uh, now we can switch to something a little bit different. Sure. I was going to ask you because I saw on your website you talk about the worst practices in software development. So. Yeah, yeah, I can talk about that. So that's it's like a it's kind of like a podcast or maybe like a mini show. I don't really know what you call clips or reels mm-hmm. or whatever you call it, but it's it's like five minute videos or less. Uh, with okay. a bunch of software developers, just asking them like, "What is your worst practice? What is the thing you do that you are, you know, most the most shameful mm-hmm. thing you do when you're writing code or whatever, working on software projects?" Mm-hmm. And you know, so some people are debugging with print, or some people don't use IDEs, or some people, mm-hmm. you know, edit the standard library. There's there's a bunch of like, <laughs> don't ever do this things that we learn in in school or in in in. Uh, and guides and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that everybody's actually violating those best practices all the time to be productive. So yeah, this is a way for us to all kind of agree that we have bad behaviors that we're doing and realize that sometimes those are useful things and you know that's okay. And so it's been a lot of fun talking to people. I'm hoping to do more of them uh, this coming spring and summer too. Um, but just been really fun yeah, learning about people's kind of you know, dirty, dirty secrets or what they're not, what they feel ashamed <laughs> of, you know, and it's yeah it turns out we all do a lot of these things anyway. So. Yeah. Do you, do you find that uh, other people enjoy watching them or is it just kind of a real small audience? It's been a great, it's no, it's, I've had like thousands and thousands of people watching and it's been great, really good feedback and comments and emails and all kinds of stuff. So I, yeah, it just takes a lot of time, as you know, to get it mm-hmm. going, to really make it right, especially if you're trying to edit it down. And so, but it's been yeah. great. And I think I'd, I'd love to talk to more, you know, like, People are super into esoteric languages. Like I'd love to talk to a fourth programmer and Haskell programmers about like mm-hmm. their experience, embedded systems, you know, we talked about a little bit and, and uh, scientific computing. So I think it's also interesting to see what the worst practices are by the domains that people are in or the mm-hmm. tools they're in. And so that's where I'm hoping to go with it from now on. But, um, you know, just to make real, I think that sometimes there's a lot of gatekeeping in programming where people say, oh, you absolutely cannot do X, Y, or Z, or, mm-hmm. you know, I only ever do this thing, or this tool's bad. And I feel like that's never true. You know, I feel like, yeah. so I, so this is also a way to just kind of clear the air and make people realize like, whatever you're doing, if you're writing code and it's useful, like that's fine, you know, like mm-hmm. there might be better ways, but it's not like there's the one true way, you know, that's I think totally wrong. So this is a way to kind of help people see that and maybe make programming a little more accessible generally, you know, that doesn't seem like it's a scary, yeah. uh, you know, the upper echelon. Um, so that's, that's really what I've been kind of focusing on, you know, uh, with that. So it's yeah, a ton of fun. Yeah. You should not, not to dictate what you're going to do. No, please. <laughs> Tell me. Since, since you brought up fourth, it'd be really cool to get some of those, uh, those older programmers, who know, like COBOL or Pascal oh, yeah, totally. or Fortran or something like that and have them on there and just tell you, you know, what, what was the good old days? What were the bad practices then? Yeah, totally. I would how was that different? <laughs> exactly. Like some dirty, yeah, some dirty practices from back then. I mean, I, I've heard about things like that where like you've probably seen on punch cards, they would draw like a big line, the red marker on the side of the punch cards. So if they dropped mm-hmm. them, they knew how to put them back together without having to, you know, quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, but then there's other things like, 
And I think there's a lot of things like that, which like, you're like, what did you do? What was that? Yeah. Even like? like, how does that work? <laughs> like, I have never even done that. And so, yeah, I would love to do some of that stuff. Um, uh, you know, there's one thing I remember like, that was like that. I mean, this is not quite that long ago, but I remember a long time ago, there was something where like, if you moved your mouse, the computer would go faster because the interrupts would somehow cause like the thread priority of the front program to be prioritized over. This is back in <laughs> Mac OS cooperative threading in like system six or seven. There were no threads. And <laughs> so it was this cooperative threading thing. And it used the mouse yeah. interrupt as a way to say like how, what's going on with the user? Like, can I do background processing? And so if you're trying to do something that was really oh. computationally slow, you would just move your mouse like really fast and it would cause the operating system to prioritize your cooperative thread over other ones. And so like, huh. that, I just feel like, you know, instead of making your code faster, I would just move my mouse a lot. You know, like, I feel like I remember uh-huh. people saying that or doing that. So I feel like <laughs> tons of stuff like that. Yeah. I'd love to uncover. So yeah, if you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them for sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll think about that and let you know. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, I think we got through all my questions. So awesome. I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today, Brett. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I had a great time talking to you and, and thanks for all the good questions. Yeah, no problem. And if anyone's interested, I'll have some links for Brett's book and website on the show notes. So go check, go check out what he does too. And thank you all for listening. Make sure to leave a review. This makes our day and fuels future episodes. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. 